0: Christine Casera, a very good friend of mine. We've been working closely together for nine years now. Um, When I have a question about psoriasis, especially the biologics, uh, I call her because she gives me the right answer and gives it to me quick and and gets right back to me. Um, And she'll be talking on um, psoriasis again today. She's been in this uh, field of psoriasis and talks extensively on psoriasis. Um, so please welcome Christine Casera. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Okay, so like Greg said, I have uh, been practicing psoriasis um, for many years. Um, I was actually in practice with Dr. Alan Mentor, who is known very well for doing psoriasis uh, And psoriatic arthritis and research uh, for many many years and he pretty much taught me uh, everything I know Um, I know dr. Callas at the beginning of this meeting gave a wonderful presentation Um, I'll try not to repeat uh, a lot of what she said but just remember now that the big focus is on the metabolic syndrome so I am going to cover that uh, somewhat okay so remember psoriasis is a chronic disease It does affect about 2.2% of the population. Um, And remember, we have been hearing this for a while that patients are not completely satisfied with their treatment, and I think it's because so many patients are not getting the aggressive treatment that they need. Uh, the new thing that has come out in the, next, in the last few years is that the incidence of comorbid conditions such as obesity, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, um, things of that nature are reportedly increased in patients with psoriasis, so we're not only looking at patients skin and joint disease now, we're having to look at the patient on an overall basis. Psoriasis is very complex. It's a genetic disease, uh, when I first started practicing with Dr. Mentor about I think it was 13 years ago, and for you that have been around a long time in dermatology, we really did think it was just a skin disease, and now we have found that it is so much more complex than that, and there's so many inflammatory pathways that are involved internally. At least eight chromosomal loci have been identified um, that uh, have been linked to psoriasis. Um, At Baylor in Dallas, we have a big uh, Genetics uh, Research Center that actually does a lot of genetic research on psoriasis and they're finding more and more um, and identifying more things um, chromosomal wise having to do with psoriasis so it's really really interesting. Remember that uh, the key actions of psoriasis all kind of starts with uh, TNF being overproduced in the body that leads to many different inflammatory pathways. And we have multiple types of psoriasis. Um, remember that plaque is the most common, but there's a lot of different types of psoriasis that you'll see. Erythrodermic psoriasis, I hope you guys never have to see this. This is when you really have to watch your patient. Remember that patients can be very ill when they're erythrodermic. Palmer planter psoriasis is probably one of the hardest diseases to treat. Nail psoriasis, I hope everyone in here it does check your patient's nails every time you see a psoriasis patient. And then remember, we have to look for psoriatic arthritis now. If you do not feel comfortable looking for psoriatic arthritis, find a rheumatologist in your area that you're comfortable with and you can share patients with. Um, we share patients back and forth all the time with rheumatologists. And you know sometimes you, you can tell the signs and symptoms are there, and sometimes you can't. So if you need help with that, make sure that you establish a relationship One thing we did with the rheumatologist at at Baylor is we kind of made a deal with them. We said, hey, if you'll see our patients for us and tell us what you think about their arthritis, we'll guarantee that if you have some kind of weird skin rash you need us to see, we'll get them in within a day or two. And so you just kind of got to bargain with them like that. And and they love that because it's so hard to get in to see a dermatologist or even a PA in dermatology. I mean, we all book out. Remember that diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis is usually based on history, physical examination and X-ray. There is no really good lab test to tell. And one thing you need to always make sure you do is when you examine a psoriasis patient, make sure they always take their clothes off, give them a gown, take their shoes and socks off. Um, and it, you know, we all have those patients that come in and say, "Oh, we we'll only have one patch. I just want you to see it. Let me pull my shirt up. Make sure you're examining the full body. One thing you really need to look for is um, at the base of the Achilles tendon, make sure the patient doesn't have enthesitis. That is a hallmark sign of psoriatic arthritis. We always make our patients take their socks and shoes off, turn around uh, with their back to us, and we examine their Achilles tendon and pal- palpate them a little bit, see if there's some thickening there. Dactylitis, this actually uh, is a, when this uh, psoriatic arthritis is very inflammatory, so always look for dactylitis. It can be very painful, um, known as a sausage digit, and it is recognized as one of the cardinal features of psoriatic arthritis. And then asymmetric um, arthritis as well. And then you always, always want to catch a patient before they end up with psoriatic arthritis of this state so make sure you're examining your patients. And then remember, any patient that has nail disease, even if they don't have swollen, tender, hot joints in their fingers and toes, make sure you palpate and see if it's tender or anything like that. Frequently associated with nail dystrophy. And then please, please take action on your patients before they get to this point, okay? You never want to have a patient get to this point when there is all the new and improved treatment out there. And then, of course, spondylitis. Okay, so I just wanted to breeze through that really quickly because I know Dr. Callis really did cover that. And then I'm gonna go into a little bit of quality of life and the need for aggressive treatment. Um, quality of life is very important. Even if you're not using any kind of quality of life tools in your office, you may wanna grab, grab one of them and start giving it to every patient Every patient that gets put in a room, you know they have to wait you know, at least five minutes. Give them a quality of life form, let them fill it out. You don't know how much that actually helps you understand the perspective they have on their disease, but it also helps with getting uh, medications approved through the insurance company. You can use a lot of that information from those forms. Psoriasis foundation, we've all seen this in the past few years, a lot of quality of life studies have been done, patients have a really hard time with their psoriasis. Um, in the uh, spring 2004, there was a survey. Uh, they used the Ku Mentor Psoriasis Instrument to ask patients how they felt about their psoriasis. And this is actually the form that we currently use in our office. And I- anybody can get a copy of this. It's very easy, and it's a very easy form to fill out. The patient fills out uh, some of the form, the uh, provider fills out um, the rest of the form and then you can have this in their chart and you may want to do it um, once a year just to see how they feel about their psoriasis and like I said this really does help you with insurance companies if you have to write a letter of uh, predetermination or prior authorization. And there's the Coup form again. Um, National Psoriasis Foundation has done many, uh, many surveys um, on patients asking them uh, the impact of their disease and uh, 17,000 patients were asked in this study and the most common symptom they had was itching. I mean if any of you have ever had a rash that itches, can you imagine itching all the time? It would drive me crazy. Emotional impact of psoriasis. I think the big thing that came out of this was that patients actually have contemplated suicide that have psoriasis. And then patient perception of treatment. You know, we hate to think that we're not doing our job, but patients are very frustrated with their treatment sometimes. So you have to make sure that you're actually addressing your patient's needs. There are patients who really don't want to be aggressive, but there are those patients who do want to be aggressive, so make sure you learn your patient and how aggressive they want to be with their treatment. This is another study that was done, Dr. Rapp um, put this in the, the, the JAD, and when patients were asked you know, how they felt physically with their psoriasis, most of them said that the only thing they thought would make them feel worse is if they had congestive heart failure. The other thing, uh, mental impact of psoriasis. Um, Depression and chronic lung disease only rated um, on a scale that would impact the patient more mentally than psoriasis. Remember, arthritis also can impact your patients. Um, I recently was at a, a meeting with a couple of psoriasis thought leaders, and it was very interesting. I had not heard this before, but then I started thinking about it. This particular psoriasis, uh, the dermatologist that treats a lot of psoriasis said, if you ever think about it, if you have any patients in your practice that are disabled and you actually have to fill the form out for them to get disability, um, they're usually your psoriatic arthritis patients. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? I have only filled out two of those forms in my life, and they were for psoriatic arthritis patients. So it does impact, very much so, some patients. So remember disability if, you're not, uh, if they're not treated with the uh, appropriate things, and this is interesting. Patients receiving treatment, the patients that have psoriasis that are actually receiving treatment. Um, patients with severe disease, um, only 61% um, were actually receiving treatment. And then proportion of psoriasis patients receiving treatment by severity level and type of therapy. What's scary about this is look how big the numbers are that only get topical therapy. And the patients that have over 10% BSA and they're only receiving topical therapy. Okay, let's talk a little bit about comorbidities. Now, there's a lot of scientific data revolving around comorbidities these days. It's been the hot topic for the past probably two years. I don't know if you guys are really interested in, you know, keeping tabs on your patients like this, but every single patient that comes in our office with psoriasis, we get a height and a weight and we calculate their BMI. And it's kind of been fun for us to just kind of get this data all together and actually see, you know, all these studies that are being published, you know, are our patients kind of falling in with the numbers that they're publishing. And I was just amazed, because I don't guess I ever really paid attention. When you look at a patient, I don't guess I ever really pay attention much to, okay, they're overweight, whatever. Um, It was amazing how many patients had over a BMI of 30 or 35. I mean, the numbers were just incredible. Um, Remember that the link between skin changes and these comorbidities remains unclear. But we start to wonder when a patient does have these conditions and they get treated, you know, are, are their comorbidities going to get better? I mean, that's kind of something that's being studied now as well. So when all that data comes out at some point, that will be very interesting. Now look at everything psoriasis patients are at an increased risk for. Obesity, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, myocardial infarction, depression, lymphoma. I mean, we all hear, and I'll, I'll go over treatments and side effects, but we all hear, and everybody reads the package insert, oh my God, if I take a TNF-alpha inhibitor, I'm gonna get lymphoma. You know what, when you have psoriasis and you're not treating it, you're at a two-fold risk for getting lymphoma anyway. So patients need to be aware of those things. Now, what is kind of the hypothetical um, reasoning here for why all this is interrelated? Heredity, immune factors, and environmental factors all contribute to cell activation of your T-cells and your antigen-presenting cells. When that happens, you get local and systemic chronic inflammation, and you get an increased levels of TNF-alpha and other cytokines in the skin and blood. Now psoriasis, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, all involve a chronic underlying systemic inflammation. So, if you have psoriasis, you know, spitting all these inflammatory cells, and yet all these other conditions are related to inflammation, you know, could it all be linked? Due to this common fact, several clinical studies conclude that there is an association between these diseases, and I think there's going to be more and more data published on that in the in the coming even months and year. So cardiovascular disease, um, we'll just run through the different metabolic uh, problems you can have here. This was a a study that was done in uh, the United Kingdom and a total of 556,000 patients were used and in that 127,000 had mild psoriasis and 3,800 had severe psoriasis. Patients were classified as severe if they had ever received a systemic therapy, so that's how they classified that. And patients were followed for five years. And you can see here a patient that has mild psoriasis has a relative risk of an MI of 1.5, but look at severe. It jumps up to almost seven-fold increase for them to have an MI. The metabolic syndrome, it's kind of probably a good idea to, to get this chart and keep it in your office just so with all the new data coming out you actually know what the metabolic syndrome is. I could not remember the metabolic syndrome from school, I had to dig it up and look at it. I remember Dr. Mentor asked me in the office one day, what does the metabolic cons- uh, syndrome consist of? And I was like, I, I don't know. So it's just kind of good to know what you, know, what you need to look for in your patients. Prevalence of metabolic syndrome in severe plaque psoriasis patients. This uh, was a study done. 581 adult patients were hospitalized for chronic plaque psoriasis, compared to 1,000 controls that were also hospitalized. Patients with plaque psoriasis were hospitalized because of the severity or the treatment resistance of their disease, and it shows here that these patients actually had an increased risk of 5.9 uh, of developing the uh, metabolic syndrome and then once again these are all the things that can come along with metabolic syndrome Uh, ischemic heart disease diabetes hypertension obesity were all increased in patients with psoriasis compared to the control group and then um, once again this was um, obesity was looked at and um, what happened with this Is they found that the risk of having obesity um, as the body uh, mass index goes up um, more nurses had psoriasis in this study the heavier that they were and it's amazing because all these studies you can all the references are all on here and you can read all these studies but the majority of them come out of the UK I think we need to get on the ball here and start doing some stuff inflammatory and metabolic responses are very closely linked we know that macrophages and uh, adipocytes share common features such as metabolic homeostasis and production of inflammatory cytokines in obesity what happens is the macrophages infiltrate the adipocytes which then become inflamed and release cytokines that affect the immune stress response and contribute to systemic inflammation basically what's that saying is the our psoriasis patients have so much inflammation, and then the more weight they gain, the more these adipose tissue is spitting out more inflammation, just causing more inflammation systemically. So it's like a never ending battle with these patients, unfortunately. Malignancies this was very interesting risk of lymphoma in psoriasis general practice. Once again, this was a UK study. Um, And this compared patients, about 153,000 patients, and 765 control patients. So these are really large studies that they do. And it showed here that patients that have severe psoriasis, look at this, they have a 10.7-fold increase for developing T-cell lymphoma. So when you tell your patients, you know, when you're, you certainly have to tell your patients all the possibilities and all everything that's listed in the package insert that they that can happen to them when they take these medications. But they also need to know if they don't do anything, they are potentially at risk for getting lymphoma and things like that anyway. Prevalence of malignancies and psoriasis once again. Standard incidence ratio. Look how big mycosis fungoides is, that's huge. And then many studies reveal the risk of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer in patients with psoriasis is equivalent to that of general population. However, um, remember that Caucasian individuals who have received more than 250 PUVA treatments, so if you're doing light therapy in your office, They have a 14-fold higher risk of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So if you're thinking that not using systemic therapy and light therapy is the best way to go and the safest way to go, make sure you're doing those skin exams on your patients and make sure that you are looking for squamous cell, basal cell, melanoma. Okay, let's go through treatment. Um, Remember that the AED consensus statement, we always like to show this on psoriasis therapies, Um, the AED finally recognized that patients needed to be treated, um, even if they had a little bit of psoriasis. If you have at least 5% or if psoriasis is affecting you, your face, your hands, your feet, you can't walk, the genital areas, um, you could be considered for systemic therapy. At the bottom remember determination of severity should include psychosocial impact this is where it comes uh, it, it comes in handy to do those uh, quality of life assessments okay so biologic therapies for psoriasis I kind of uh, read or pink where you want to call it Reptiva we all kind of know what happened with that but we did have it around at some point so we have T cell modulators and we have TNF antagonist so um, This All this information I'm giving you actually, um, Dr. Mentor published a wonderful article um, in the JAD 2008, and it's really easy to read, and it pretty much goes through every treatment that there is, all potential side effects, what you should do, what you should look for, without all the unnecessary garbage mixed in there. So it's a great, great article. So, Amiviv, remember, binds to memory T lymphocytes, inhibits their activation. It is for moderate to severe psoriasis. Dosing is 15 milligrams every week I am for 12 weeks, and then the patient gets a holiday. Short-term results, uh, 21% of patients can get a posi 75 at week 14, and long-term results, there have been associated long remissions in some responders. What we have kind of seen is the patients that do well on Amiviv do really, really well on Amiviv, and they're the ones that tend to get Um, come back and get their injections every you know we have a few patients that um, have gone year a year without their psoriasis uh, waking up again but once it does they come back in they get their Amiviv and they're great so I have seen that when it works it works Uh, prior response is a marker for future response so if you have a patient that has done well on Amiviv more than likely they'll do well again Um, it does have a a good safety profile in the clinical trials it is a pregnancy category B and the contraindications on this would be HIV so adalubumab or Umera indications it has more than just psoriasis indications remember it's got psoriatic arthritis JRA Crohn's ankylosing spondylitis Dosing is 80 milligrams for the loading dose, 40 milligrams the second week, and then followed by 40 every other week. Short-term results, 80%, 80% of patients are getting a posi-75 at week 12, and long-term, 68% of patients achieve a posi-75 um, at week 60. A small percentage of patients lose efficacy with continued use. I think we've kind of seen that. The longer you've been in dermatology, the more you've seen that you know drugs wear out or what, you know, we think happens sometimes is your immune system just gets so smart it figures out how to get inflammation going around it. Toxicities, um, injection site reactions, we kind of see that with all the injections. Rare reports of serious infections and malignancies, and rare reports of drug induced lupus, cytopenia, MS, and CFH. And this is a pregnancy category B as well. Then we have ETAN receptor Enbrel also for psoriatic arthritis psoriasis um, and rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and we know we give this 50 twice a week and then you do the step down therapy short-term results results about 49% of patients will get a positive 75 at week 12 and 54 um, after the step down uh, 54% achieve a positive 75 at week 24 and that was after the dose was decreased so once again injection site reactions rare cases of infections and malignancies, some drug-induced lupus, cytopenia, MS, and CHF, and once again, pregnancy category B, and contraindications would be if you have a patient with sepsis. Okay, let's go through Remicade indications uh, for severe psoriasis, moderate to severe psoriatic arthritis, once again, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's. This is infused, the dosing, uh, five milligrams per kilogram infused at weeks zero to six, and then every six to eight weeks. And you can titrate this up to uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram um, as you need to, as you see if the patients aren't improving. Short-term results, great short-term results, 80% of patients received at least a posi-75 at week 10, with a 50% improvement noted as early as week two. So this is a really um, fast onset of action here. A long-term result, 61% of patients achieved a 75 at week 50. Infusion reactions, serum sickness, it is there. It's a very low incidence, but you do have to monitor your patients. Rare cases of serious infections and malignancies, including hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma in children. Rare cases of drug-induced lupus and all the others we have seen pregnancy category B and the contraindications in this one remember is class 3 or 4 CHF okay so what are the general recommendations for treating your patients with TNF alpha inhibitors okay remember there are some contraindications TB testing should be performed on all patients treated with this class of drug initially and every year do not use with live vaccines TNF inhibitors should not be used in patients with MS or other demyelinating disorders, and caution should be used when considering a TFF inhibitor in use uh, patients with CHF, and patients should be screened for Hepatitis B. Remember when you're going to treat patients with these medications, considering all the metabolic syndrome uh, problems that patients can have, make sure you're not their primary care physician. They really need to be watched by someone else you know your patients love you and they tend to start asking you for things and you know all the women want you to treat their yeast infection and all that stuff make sure you're not treating their hypertension and everything else okay make sure they're going to their other other providers for that what are some safety issues with TNF Um, these are the main categories we'll go through infections All TNF inhibitors carry the potential for increased risk of infections with upper respiratory infection being the most common. Rare um, opportunistic infections such as histoplasmosis, candidiasis, pneumocystitis have been reported. Uh, Many of the patients that had had these problems were also on other immunosuppressants. Methotrexate steroids or both remember I think we get so comfortable giving patients prednisone medral dose pack and things like that remember that that is an immunosuppressant so don't uh, I think we get too comfortable with just passing that out to our patients recommendation treatment with TNF inhibitors should be avoided if possible in patients with chronic serious or recurring infections okay hepatitis B reactivation there is a boxed warning FDA suggests that patients who have concurrent hepatitis B should not be treated with any of the TNFs. Um, Based on post marketing data there have been a few cases of latent HBV reactivation and it usually happens within three weeks to 20 months after initiating the therapy and the majority of these cases also had been treated with other immunosuppressants methotrexate Um, imuran corticosteroids it's it's recommended to screen all patients for hepatitis prior to starting with anti-tnf therapy once again this is where you need a friend that's an infectious disease person that can help you out if you do find in your screening that your patients do have hep B or hep C now hepatitis C has been interesting Um, there are elevated levels of TNF in patients with hepatitis C compared with controls suggesting that TNF may be involved in the pathogenesis of hepatocyte destruction. There are two very small studies that have been done suggesting that anti-TNF alpha therapy may be safe for the use in chronic hepatitis C infection. So if all that TNF alpha is actually, you know, killing those hepatocytes, it's possible that by treating your patients with hepatitis C, that you could do them some benefit. Now, once again, any patient that we have with hepatitis has to be um, seen by infectious disease, and at Baylor, um, our, our docs there, our ID docs, um, basically tell us um, that it's, you know, it's fine. We do have some patients on hep- that have hepatitis C on the anti-TNFs, and they're doing great. Um, Just make sure that they follow up. Remember, don't become their PCP or their ID person. Make sure they follow up and they keep their appointments with that infectious disease doc. But the patients we've seen have done very well. Neurologic issues. Peripheral and central demyelinating disorders have been seen, including MS. Um, They have been reported not only to develop but worsen in patients taking TNFs. These medications should be avoided in a, with patients who have a personal history of MS or demyelating conditions. And remember, first-degree relatives of patients with MS have an increased risk of developing MS. So if you know a patient comes in and says, I've never had any problems, but my mom has MS, then you really want to be cautious, okay? Onset of new neurologic symptoms in a patient on TNF inhibitors should promptly be evaluated by a neurologist once again need to develop relationship with all kinds of people if you're going to use these medications. Okay this is actual Craig Leonardi's patient and he allows us to show this slide this is a he calls a bad day in a dermatology office this is not what you want to happen. Um, axial flare image shows a large right frontal lobe white matter lesion and this was a, one of his psoriasis patients. So. Make sure you're not scared of these medications. They are wonderful for patients and we use the heck out of them at Baylor in Dallas. But just know what can happen and be cautious. If someone comes in your office, you know, what should, what should you always ask them? Always ask them if they've had headaches, visual changes, uh, numbing or tingling in the fingers and the toes, loss of coordination. Um, you know, these things need to be documented in the chart. What about heart disease? TNF use in patients with CHF is controversial. Preliminary evidence that TNF could be of benefit in CHF. There's been a couple of studies. The first one was uh, reported that the incidence of CHF in patients with RA on etanercept and afliximab was significantly lower than those not on TNFs and also the two, in 2001, demonstrated a dose-dependent improvement in both left v- ventricular function and CHF in patients being treated with the Tandospirone. Recommendations: Mild CHF and stable, just document, follow the patient. Moderate to severe, consult your cardiologist. Okay? Once again, someone else you have to make friends with. So make sure you've got all this support staff in your in your neighborhood that are willing to see these patients for you and, uh, and, and make sure it's documented. You always want it documented that these patients have seen whoever you feel is necessary. They usually send a letter back, thanks for referring, this is what I find. Make sure you put that in their chart. Okay, lymphoma. Patients with psoriasis has, have an increased risk of lymphoma, particularly Hodgkin's and CTCL. Um, In 2005, uh, a review of clinical trial data showed that the evidence concluded that the overall risk of malignancies, including lymphoma, was not increased over baseline levels in patients with RA being treated with TNF inhibitors. So remember that your patients without treatment can be at risk for developing lymphoma. So when they read the package insert and the pharmacist who thinks they're a a medical provider tells them they're going to get lymphoma when they hand them the package, then you make sure that you're going over that data beforehand or you're going to get panicked patients calling you. There have been numerous ante- anecdotal cases of lymphomas reported in patients treated with TNFs that have resolved after discontinuation of the drug. Recommendation on this, basically careful consideration when using TNFs in patients with a history of lymphoma. What about lupus-like syndrome? There is increased levels of circulating ANA may occur in patients uh, taking any of the TNFs. There have been some reported cases of patients who developed signs and symptoms of lupus while receiving TNFs, however, condition was reversible uh, with cessation of the drug. Recommendations, just be aware. It's not necessary to evaluate patients for ANA, but if you feel like you need to draw an ANA on a patient, then certainly do that. Skin cancer, Um, 2007, there was a report um, and the the results of a large study of patients with RA taking biologic agents. There was an increased risk for development of non-melanoma skin cancer by about 1.5 and an increased risk for developing melanoma of about 2.3. How do you monitor patients on biologics? Um, This actually was a great article. Once again, if you want to grab a copy of this article from the JAD, 2008. I believe it was in either January or February. Um, And it goes, it's a psoriasis consensus of all the top docs that treat with the medications. And they actually came, they actually got a group of dermatologists to agree on something. Can you imagine that?